Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and Beaches Vacation.com. Hi, Maeve. Hi, Jim. How's it going? Oh, good. I'm just, I kind of wish we were in the same room today. I'll tell you why in a second. Hi, listeners. <laughs> Hi, everyone. <laughs> this is Social Distance, the Atlantic's podcast about the pandemic. I'm James Hamblin, a doctor and staff writer at The Atlantic. And I'm Maeve Higgins. I'm a writer and newly converted macadamia fan. What? I added that to my bio because I found the most gorgeous <laughs> macadamia nuts. I know they are so expensive. Yes. But they're worth their weight in macadamias. They're so good that you now use that as your main identifier of who <laughs> you are. <laughs> well, you know, that freelance life. I think it is a kind of important signifier. It's like I'm rich. I love these incredibly high in fat nuts because I know how to live. And I mean, I think you're supposed to have a handful or something. I mean, I don't care about portions or anything, but they are so delicious, Jim. And then I feel so sleepy afterwards. <laughs> sleepy? Is that a thing? Or is that just you? I don't know. I, that's what I wanted to ask you. Oh, well, it's not something I've heard of, but. If there were, mm -hmm. you know, a delicious nut that can put you to sleep, that would be a, a great thing. Yeah, I think there's... For an evening snack, right. not necessarily for a work day, you know. <laughs> you have to get things done and then you're dozing off and people have been telling you, been, they can tell you've been hitting the, the macadamia jar pretty. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's at it again. Is that why mm -hmm. you wish we were in the same room so you, I could try these nuts? Yeah. <laughs> You'd lose your mind, I'm sure. And and you're not being paid by big macadamia? I mean, of course not, Jim. I have never done SponCon, you know. The Coca-Cola that I have in my hand right now <laughs> is just a refreshing breakaway from the trials and tribulations of life. I mean, that's the reason we all drink uh, delicious Coca-Cola <laughs> when we're reaching for a relaxation beverage and want mm -hmm. something sweet and American classic. Why not? I mean, you know, our, our best athletes are selling soda to kids still today. Yes. Look, Maeve, you've got it's, me off on a rant. Here we go. <laughs> but it's something mm. that should not be okay. No, absolutely not. And so then what do you think about giving away free donuts, free beer, other things? Oh. Now, you wrote about it recently, and you seem to be in favor of nudges, is what you yeah. call them. Nudges. Can you explain what you mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> this depends how far down the road of uh, discussion of free will you want to go. I'm seeing this... I assume most listeners have heard, and we've even discussed a little bit, sort of just small incentives that people have gotten, like Krispy Kreme donuts, and, and most recently news of there was a lottery that 
they announced in Ohio that you would mm. be entered into a lottery if you've been vaccinated. And then some other states copied that, copied something similar. Yeah. Where people get a lottery ticket. I know in New York, if you just got vaccinated, you get a lottery ticket. And it seems that, you know, led to a bump in vaccination. Mm. And I think that's a very good sweet spot where there's an incentive that people are familiar with and isn't <laughs> like isn't you're not withholding something extremely important to people yeah which would amount to a bad punishment and you're not promising something that would feel so grand as to like raise eyebrows or feel coercive if it's something too big especially <laughs> if yeah. you started giving people like a thousand dollars everyone mm -hmm. who got vaccinated already would be pretty mad and those mm -hmm. who didn't would be like that's suspicious why you know but small things like this seem to have fit into a nice area where people who are kind of just on the fence or been putting it mm -hmm. off this isn't actually like driving their decision but it's just mm -hmm. tipping it's like a tipping point yeah, you wrote about like how Americans, you know, with the carrot and stick approach, but this sounds like you're okay with people being given like baby carrots, you know, but they, <laughs> <laughs> but Americans don't really like the, the stick part, which is, you yeah. know, like that's because, you know, the whole, you get a lot of ticket, oh, your chances of being struck by lightning are the same. Like I always associate those two, but it's like, yeah, well, if, you, if you don't get a vaccine, nobody can as far as we know, strike you with lightning, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, there, <laughs> there's been no correlations yet citing that. No. But <laughs> as soon as you start to make rules, you know, I think that's a big part of why things become politicized. And, and there are a lot of people who are like, I'm not against vaccines. I personally got the vaccine or I would. Yeah. But I don't think there should be a rule because of, you know, some libertarian streak or right. just skepticism of pharma or government generally. And like, if you can do it with you know as few mandates as possible that will lead to more like public buy-in and avoid those sort of objections which actually like aren't they aren't about the vaccine at all they just jumble up politics and mm -hmm. resistance to requirements to do anything at all with the vaccine and so the more that it can just be like people decided to do this because they weighed the costs and benefits of continuing the pandemic or ending the pandemic and they decided to end the pandemic and if like an additional lottery ticket is what got them to actually make yeah. the appointment this week then all good i suppose the bigger things at stake than kind of beer or donuts or lotto tickets are one listener wrote into us and she she's in utah elizabeth her name is and she talked about how utah has banned schools and universities from requiring masks. Now, it's not signed yet, but the governor has said he's going to sign it. And that yeah. impacts Elizabeth's daughter's school for next year. So th this little girl is six, she's going to be in first grade and the daycare for their son because it's on the University of Utah campus. So, I mean, it does sound political, right? Like the state of Utah also prohibited public entities from requiring vaccinations. Um, yeah, yes. And and in addition to banning mask requirements, other states have banned uh, any vaccine requirements. It's states like Montana, states where there's, you know, a strong individualist streak. And this is before people are even really proposing them. So preemptively banning like people who are against big government mandates are actually issuing big government mandates that yeah. say you can't do these things so it's certainly in states like that 
you're going to have to be more creative where you don't have the political will to to, to issue many more requirements. Well, but, Elizabeth has like a direct question, which is... Oh, no. Yes. Um, I'll do my best. Because obviously the CDC said unvaccinated kids should wear masks when indoors if they're in with other unvaccinated people, including childcare centres. So she's caught in the middle. So she wanted to know, should we send our kids anyway? Or do we need to start looking for private schools and a new daycare that are able to follow CDC guidance? I think there's too much to unpack there in terms of, you know, all that mm -hmm. goes into deciding where you're going to go to school. It would uh, e even someone with my level of hubris couldn't make <laughs> such advice. But um, my hope is that vaccines for kids will be available pretty soon. By September? Um, and like that's when they're uh, going back. Mm. Yeah, in the fall, fall to winter period. So sh there shouldn't be a huge overlap here. And people who are extremely concerned would hopefully have an option to help keep their kid out of yeah. environments where they feel extremely unsafe because the finish line is in sight in terms of vaccination. But of course, any parent's decision to either try homeschooling or switching schools is a extremely complex. I have to say, you know, since I was been hosting this show, I've learned that the listeners of the show are extremely smart. And yeah. do you remember last week... Um, you know, you have been you have been speaking with the Surgeon General and we played a clip of uh, Vivek Murthy. That's his name, right? Yes. And I asked you, like, why does he wear a uniform? Like, who is he? <laughs> like, his position was kind of confusing and you didn't know exactly either. <laughs> I said I didn't know about the uniform. He, he's an he, he's an advisor to the president, which we clarified. Mm -hmm. But in general, this surgeon general is sort of a communications job. I said, you know, speaks for America's doctors. It really should should have said America's public health institutions. But okay. uh, you know, the surgeon general has generally been like the kind of person who could issue like a. <laughs> like it's not a CDC guideline that they issue, but it's more like mm -hmm. a he's everyone's doctor, and here's what he's mm -hmm. advising. So it's more one very smart person's advice that you might take or leave. Okay. Yeah, but you know, you know, I think it, during the show you were like, I don't know, maybe a listener could be a bit more um, oh, accurate yes. about that, and then specifically with regard to the <laughs> uniform, which I yeah yeah I, I wasn't prepared to talk about. <laughs> You, you you catch me in so much so many interesting questions, but that's why I enjoy chatting with you, Maeve. It's an interesting role, and mm -hmm. uh, and and we had someone write in about that. Yeah, that's right. Do you want to give her a call now so that she can tell us pr properly once and for all about the Surgeon General? Who is it? <laughs> her name is Dr. Ruth Fairbanks. She's literally a college professor. She's a senior instructor at Indiana State University, and I don't know how to say this. Terre Haute. Indiana State isn't, yeah. Terre Haute? Terre Haute. Oh, Terre Haute. That's what we said in Indiana growing up. I, I mm -hmm. suppose there are uh, other ways it could be pronounced if you're not from Indiana. So Dr. Fairbanks teaches history and gender studies, and one of her classes is in the history of American health policy. Oh, perfect. Yeah. So she can tell us about the uniform. Hi, Jim. Hi, Maeve. It's really nice to meet you. <laughs> Hi, Dr. Fairbanks. Hi, Dr. Fairbanks. Just, Lovely to meet you. 
I've listened to Social Distance since it began, and I also remember listening to Mave in America. Oh, wow. <laughs> Long time Mave fan. Yeah, that's, yeah that's so lovely. Thank you so much. And um, we absolutely were delighted with your email because my big question was, what is going on with his uniform? Well, one of the classes that I teach is a class on the history of American health policy. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we cover in my course is a little bit about public health as well as how we finance healthcare in this country. And we mm-hmm. start in the colonial period. And so my students cover the establishment of the Marine Hospital Service, which started in 1798. And that is the origin of the United States Public Health Service. It grew out of the Marine Hospital Service where Congress established and John Adams signed into law that the American government would pay for the direct care of merchant seamen, sailors on merchant ships, would provide for their direct care if they were injured or ill. Was that because nobody nobody was doing that? Or was that from the goodness of their heart? Or why would they agree to do that? Well, sailors, seamen are a very interesting case. And it wasn't just the United States. Great Britain had a long-standing tradition also of providing some care for seamen. And it's because this was an occupation that was at once exposed people to a variety of like bad weather that could cause serious health problems and falls mm-hmm. and ex- poor food and also mm-hmm. exposure to disease and poor living conditions. So this was a very vulnerable population at the same time that it was a very important population because for, mm-hmm. for Great Britain, anything related to ocean going was really essential as they have this huge empire. And then the American colonies and the brand new United States, all of the new states are along the eastern seaboard and the ocean Mm -hmm. is the highway. Mm -hmm. And they've also just declared independence from a major imperial power. It's really important that they also have like access to the ocean. So it's essential for the nation, as well as the population is very vulnerable. And then the other thing is that charity care would have only been provided to people who were in that community. And sailors, of course, then when they put ashore, they don't have a home community. So they were always outsiders, so they would have been locked off from any access to any charity care. And some of these are still typical of American um, healthcare delivery, that we deliver some of it according to a group that we've sort of picked apart as like, this group is eligible for health care, not the whole population, but just this group is. And then also, we typically do organize our health care, a lot of it, based on location and your membership in a community. That's why some states, of course, have expanded Medicare under the ACA, and some states have not. This tradition dates back to the colonial period in the United States, where people who are defined as outside, then they're not, they don't get the same access. But then over the course of time, the Marine Hospital Service begins to accept quarantine responsibilities because they're, I mean, they're Mm -hmm. doctors who are paid by the government. So they're like an existing thing that can be used for this other job. And then they gradually begin to take on other responsibilities too, investigations in diseases like hookworm and pellagra and attempts to control the spread of 
of malaria to control mosquitoes, mm-hmm. and they gradually take on more and more of these responsibilities. And sometime around the turn of the century, they, the name changes to the first the public health and marine hospital service, and then just the public health service. From the 19th to 20th century? Around that time. It goes through stages. And one thing is you can watch the effects of wars on the expansion Mm. of American public health efforts. And a big expansion was around the First World War, an effort at malaria control. And also coming out of the First World War, the public health service was the origin of the Veterans Administration, the VA system. And also efforts to control the spread of venereal disease, both in the First World War and especially Mm -hmm. in the Second World War. A lot of those focused on the areas around military bases. And I I think we even skipped over the Civil War, right? Right. There were some developments there with uh, U.S. Sanitary Commission Mm -hmm. and uh, Union Army trying to keep people from dying of unsanitary conditions actually leading to creation of an agency there. Actually, this is an excellent point. The public health service, the U.S. public health service, is not just physicians or health care providers. It encompasses a lot of other professions and expertise. A lot of engineers, for instance, work mm-hmm. in the um, public health service, and also veterinarians and statisticians, mathematicians, uh, all, all a variety so you can of actually be a vet vet. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. Uh, we, <laughs> Did you get that? <laughs> I, I, so I did misspeak when I said represents the nation's doctors. Uh, that is, that was, uh, I meant that kind of figuratively, like just one voice mm-hmm. of doctors. But in fact, at an official capacity, the Surgeon General speaks for all these people, engineers, Mm -hmm. veterinarians. um. And while most of the time they have been physicians, before Dr. Murthy was confirmed a second time, there was an acting Surgeon General, and that Surgeon General was by training a nurse. I'm not sure if any of the ones who have been actually confirmed have not been physicians. But this wasn't Hmm. the first time that a nurse was the acting Surgeon General. And do people in the public health service wear uniforms or is it just the Surgeon General? Nope, they all wear uniforms. It's one of the uniformed services of the United States. So, um, And their uniform is more like that of a Navy uniform and their ranks, Mm -hmm. because you progress quite similar to military ranks, and the ranks are based more on Navy ranks than on Army ranks. The rank of the Surgeon General, I think, is a Vice Admiral or some sort of Admiral. And you Mm -hmm. look at the bars on the sleeves indicates the the rank, but just above the bars on the sleeves of that dress uniform, you see the insignia. The symbol of the Public Health Service is a caduceus, Mm -hmm. which is the medical symbol with the two snakes and the wings, but it's crossed with an anchor. And the anchor Mm. is hearkening back to the origins of this being the Marine Hospital Service. Gotcha. So we have this branch, which is a uniform service, sort of on par with Army, Navy, Air Force, and yet is devoted to health. Yes. And we, we just don't hear about it quite as much apart from apart from the Surgeon General. Well, why is that? Why don't we? We just maybe don't realize who 
we're oh. hearing about. For instance, um, mm-hmm. I'm, a few years ago when there was the Ebola outbreak in Liberia and the United States sent people to help in Liberia, those were public health service officers. Those were commissioned officers in the U.S. Public Health Service. And so we heard about that. We just Mm -hmm. didn't maybe realize that's who it was. And the eradication of smallpox when people from the CDC had these strike teams that would go around the world when there was an outbreak and they would do ring vaccination to try to prevent the spread uh, and ultimately eradicated smallpox. The CDC is part of the public health service. National Institutes of Health also started out in the public health service. The Indian Health Service started out in the public health service, and a lot of the people who staff Indian Health Service facilities are commissioned in the U.S. Public Health Service. Instead of carrying weapons, people, uniformed members of the health service, carry, I assume, vials of antibiotics or uh, vaccines? Or the engineers carry whatever engineers would be, shovels, mm-hmm. <laughs> construction <laughs> equipment. <laughs> productive. Things. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so I've seen more movies about like seals and. We like to have movies about like the elite teams, like seal yeah. teams, like the, the, the elite of the elite. Maybe if there is or, you know, could be a section of the public health service that's just like these highly trained 12 people but those are the lots who went to who went to liberia probably they already did that huh yeah they they do it all the time well we just need it's just a branding thing then i guess (laughs) well i it's it's fascinating to learn the origins and it's also so ironic to me that you know from conflict comes this like expertise almost like the opposite of preventative health like if it wasn't for like the civil war, then they wouldn't be so good at dealing with dysentery. You know, it's like in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, like the doctors in Belfast were like the best ever at dealing with kneecaps. You know, they're like world renowned because so many people had their kneecap shot. No, it's quite true. So many advancements in public health have come through um, times Mm -hmm. of war. And hopefully we can continue to invest in public health even uh, when there's not war. Uh, just pandemics. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, true. Ruth, this was extremely helpful. Uh, I, if you wouldn't mind coming on ev- every few weeks and just issuing <laughs> corrections and er- errata uh, for us, that would be a huge This was help. the first time that I heard something that I thought I should weigh in on and help you Aww. out with. Yes. Oh, no, but thank you. We best. really appreciate yeah. it. I've really, I've really enjoyed your podcast. It, it's what I listen to while cooking on Thursday. I look forward to it. Thanks, Thank million. you so much. I yeah. love that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. So today, Jim, we really decided to get into listener questions. Last week, we were talking about CDC mask guidance. And mostly, it seems if everyone's vaccinated, you can more or less resume normal life, even though it's good to be considerate, wear masks when you're asked. Um, But a listener named Monty wrote in. And are you ready for his question? Okay, Monty asks, my wife and I are considering going to a tango festival the third week of June. Mm -hmm. Everyone there has to show that they've been vaccinated as of June 1st. It's hours of close dancing with many partners over three days. 
I don't know why I'm finding this that funny. Yeah, this is so good. I wish I could dance. <laughs> um, so he, I'm curious to hear how to assess the risks in this situation. On the face of it, with everybody vaccinated, it seems as if it should be safe, but I'm just not sure. Okay, this mm-hmm. is a great question. Because, yeah, when you're tangling with someone, this is, you know, you're even closer than if you were just having yeah. conversation. So if everyone is indeed vaccinated... I think now is a great time to take an opportunity like this, especially right now while, you know, we have a good sense of there not being a vaccine resistant mm-hmm. variant around overall viral levels are low in the U.S. Lots of people are newly vaccinated. So, they, you know, like, we hope that we don't need boosters and that, that our immunity remains as durable as you know durable for a long long time but we we do know that in the short term uh, at least the vaccines work really well so it's i think it's a great situation to do this and not take these opportunities for granted do it now without getting into the winter we might start to see levels come back up we might start to see variants yeah. we might start to see vaccines waning i don't know but right now we don't have that so so do things like okay. this because life is Precious. Okay, I love that. And I'm sure, you know, dancers like yeah. Monty and his wife have really been missing it. So I hope they just have oh, a ball. Yeah. Um, okay, another question. This is kind of about booster shots. So this comes from Alan. So I feel a little guilty asking this when so much of the world has yet to get the vaccine, but I'm a healthcare provider and received my first Moderna shot in mid-January 2nd in mid-February. Now I'm wondering how long the immunity granted from the vaccine lasts. From what I've seen online, nobody knows for sure, but they seem to believe they'll work well for at least six months. Given that many people in the US plan to never get vaccinated, should I plan to be more careful after mid-August when it will have been six months since my second dose? And then finally, he mentions, I'm more concerned about my parents who were in their 80s and got their first shot, Pfizer, in mid-February, the second one, three weeks later. At what point should they avoid, say, restaurants, traveling? Will they need regular antibody testing in the fall to test their immunity level? These are my concerns. I can say a little bit mm-hmm. and I can say, you know, that we're hopeful is the antibodies fade, which they will. You can't carry antibodies around to everything you've been vaccinated against or your blood would just be solid antibodies right. that you'll have memory responses in your immune system from B and T cells that can kick in when, if and when your body does encounter this virus and that there won't be significant new variants. But the answer is that we will have to see. Okay. That's partly why I'm, you know, emphasizing like taking the opportunity like the doing the tango thing when you know everyone is, you know, relatively newly vaccinated and cases are low. I am interested to see what this winter looks like. Yeah. It's, you know, couldn't be as bad as last winter, but there might be a situation where depending on where we plateau with how many people get vaccinated, how well we do or don't drive down cases around the world, where this is part of our life and you wouldn't want to go to a big gathering with people who, you know, whose vaccine status you don't know come winter. And Alan so, yeah. does seem to be saying, like, he's thinking about himself from kind of like mid-August on and his parents, you know, going to restaurants and stuff. So is what you're saying, keep an eye on the news or... I would say, like, if if you were trying to needing to make plans mm-hmm. like right now for 
next January mm-hmm. going to like a big indoor wedding or something chanting, chanting festival, festival. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know like something that where you just be like around a lot of strangers and doing something mm-hmm. where there's chances of transmission mm-hmm. you know I would just kind of keep that on ice right now <laughs> we might have to be still taking some sort of precautions okay. come winter especially if we are figuring this out you know if we're starting to see breakthrough cases and we just don't know a lot of people will want to be cautious okay and uh, we will keep a close eye on this and I will keep reporting on it. I promise as soon as we know more, I will tell everyone. I think this is our last question. And this is from a listener who wrote in to ask about this building certification commercial that they've been seeing. JLo is is on it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's Well that. Health Safety Seal, W-A-L-L. What? It's not terribly unusual to see a logo or something in big cities where they have like green roofs or other energy saving stuff. But what do you think of this kind of certification? Like, is it worth paying attention to or is it like what you would say is sanitation theater? Did you see this commercial, firstly, to which this uh, it's there are so many celebrities in it. Yeah. I mean, I have my own thoughts about that. I can't believe you weren't in it. <laughs> Don't think I wasn't asked. Well, you were just like, I should give the spot to Michael I, B. Jordan. I'm exclusively Macadamias. And so I, when I signed with Macadamias, okay. they were like, no other. And they, they paid like, me enough no. as well. Believe you me, I'm pretty comfortable. I do <laughs> find it kind of pathetic that like all these people who are already really rich just like are willing to do that to get even richer? Well, no, Maeve, I don't think that's why they're doing it. <laughs> oh, you it. think they believe in um, them? No, I mean, it's a real certification. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, who else was in it? Lady Gaga and, and J-Lo. Mm-hmm. So the idea of certification of buildings as healthy uh-huh. um, is a valid and important one. That is going to be one of the ways that this conversation should I actually wrote about well building certification this time last year. Yeah. <laughs> Saying like employers need to guarantee ventilation yes. and uh, space and light. And there are different building certification systems that are sort of above and beyond what might be required by mm-hmm. law, but which, you know, can help people. If, if there's a building you have to spend a lot of time in, if it's your mm-hmm. employer, things like that can help assure people that they're in a safe space where someone has vetted this you know ventilation and stuff at some regular interval even though that you know ideally should be maintained by like building codes and standards and if especially if you're traveling you don't know that that might vary the degree to which that's enforced might vary from place Mm -hmm. to place i'm not saying people should like not go into a building unless they see that but thinking more about healthy buildings healthy spaces is is actually very good so on a kind of related note like you know how restaurants are like a b c d you know for their cleanliness what's your limit yeah because i'm like c is oh how fine. low would yeah I like go? i think like c is fine cooked c is for co- you know like i'm like that's okay <laughs> but what about you i don't know mm. i that's i don't know that i've thought about that threshold yeah I, I will think about it more <laughs> um That means you don't even look. (laughs) (laughs) I think um, the more that we can 
shift the conversation toward making sure that people have healthy spaces and less toward whether individuals are wearing their masks, you know, a lot can be done to Mm -hmm. make sure that workplaces are healthy on the end of the employers, not just the employees. Good air circulation prevents inhalation of of air pollution, prevents, could prevent transmission of cold and flu and all these other things that cost companies and uh, people tons mm-hmm. of lost work and it's just a good movement all around i like how you always go for um it, like you take it off the person's shoulders with so much health stuff it's always like yeah. you better fix yourself loser or you know like those terrible books that are like you're a mess get it together and like people buy them <laughs> but you always think about like, like bigger systems that are that should be more humane and kinder and then that helps me to think about that too if only people wanted to read books about those things. <laughs> <I know. laughs> people want to read books about like how terrible they are and how it's possible to completely transform overnight Get it together, you stupid idiot, which you can do with three simple right. tips. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, That's the title of your next book? Yeah, now? I just wrote that down, actually, with three simple tips, and now I just have to work out what the tips are. <laughs> but I feel like people will just buy it on the co- on the basis of that, and they won't even look inside. You get to the end, you're like, that was really fun and funny, but did we ever get the tips? <laughs> Let's do the three tips on the next episode. (laughs) Okay. Well, great to talk to you, Jim. Thanks for answering all those questions. Thank you um, for for posing them. And and thank you to everyone who wrote in. And and especially thanks to Ruth for coming on and, and schooling us in the history of the Surgeon General. Social Distance is produced by AC Valdez with help from Kevin Townsend. We love hearing from listeners. If there's something you'd like us to talk about on an upcoming show, our email is socialdistance at theatlantic.com. You can call us too. 202-642-6487. And finally, as always, if you like this show and if you want access to all of The Atlantic's journalism, the best way to do that is by subscribing at theatlantic.com slash support us. Thanks, Malin. Bye-bye. Bye.